Welcome to Newsweek Radio. I'm Jesse Edwards, and today we step into an exceptional journey alongside a man whose name echoes through the corridors of musical greatness. Steve Vai isn't just a guitar virtuoso. He is a creative force that defies limits. He also just happens to be my favorite living musician on the planet, and spending a couple hours with him in his personal recording studio in Los Angeles last week was an opportunity of a lifetime, to say the least. And he's about to go back on the road with Joe Satriani and Eric Johnson for the G3 reunion tour. Steve Vai, wow. We are sitting in your studio, which to me feels like the center of the universe here in the <laughs> Harmony Hut. <laughs> the Harmony Hut. It's more like a gentleman library or something. <laughs> I didn't want it to look like a conventional studio, you know. Are you? I want to dive right into like the guitar stuff right away. It's what everybody wants to talk to you about. But I, I want to pause for a second and just stop and, and ask you, are you happy? How is life? How is your family? How are you as a human being? If things get any better, I'm going to explode. <laughs> I'm a very happy guy. I really am. I can't say that's been the case through my whole life. And, you know, there's times where um, I, uh, you know, I have challenges like anybody else. But I was very fortunate in that when I was young, um, I was one of these people that was just wondering what's going on. Like I remember like being six years old and standing out on my front lawn looking around going, okay, I don't remember designing this body and I certainly didn't make it. I was just put in it. Why? <laughs> you know, like what's going on? So I was just one of those people and I had a really nice childhood. Five kids in the family, a lot of love. We had our challenges. My dad had, uh, my dad was a liquor salesman and a bartender, so he kind of got seduced into drinking, um, which created some dysfunction in the family until he, he just quit when I was 12. And that was, you know, one of our family's greatest blessing, you know, he just quit. And uh, then I got to know him and I was fortunate he lived long enough to see the fruits of his support because he was very supportive. Both of my parents and my whole family were always very supportive of each other. And then uh, I just had a pull towards music. There was, it was like a, a, a warm, easy place. And you know, as you're going through adolescence and you're, you're changing and you're feeling alone, sometimes individual, you don't quite fit in or whatever, a lot of, this is not an uncommon feeling that a lot of people have. It's not uncommon also to find an escape, and music and the guitar were just it. Throughout my entire music career, I've never really felt like I've faced real challenges. Of course, playing something difficult, but I mean, as far as the unfolding perfectly of those things that I love most about music, because I was a teenager in the 70s, really into rock and roll of the 70s, you know, that progressive Led Zeppelin, Queen, uh, Deep Purple, Aerosmith, you know. And when I was very young, though, I knew I wanted to be a composer. I knew I wanted to, I, I wanted to know the language of music. And I studied it all through high school. So my brain kind of takes these two things and mixes them together. Uh, but when I look back at my career and I, um, you, you, everybody can do this, you can recognize certain 
things that were very helpful. And the thing that was most helpful for me was just my love for the instrument. I just loved it. I loved imagining things that I couldn't do and then working on them until I can do them. I loved when you find a melody that works and it makes you feel a certain way. I love coming up with, um, you know, sometimes complex, sometimes simple things. Uh, but I loved playing and practicing. I wanted to be, effort I wanted to play effortlessly. And I had no expectations for the future. I wasn't one of these kids that started playing the guitar so we can get laid. You know, there was plenty of that. <laughs> you know, it started at 15. But um, I wasn't one of these people that had uh, aspirations of being famous and uh, successful in that way. I knew it was possible and I didn't, I wasn't going to turn it down, but I actually didn't care. I just wanted to play. And when I graduated high school, I actually thought I would uh, be a m music teacher in a high school. Because that was very, uh, I liked teaching and it didn't matter. It, I didn't mind what happened, but I loved playing. And the funny thing that happened, that was of prime importance. And as a result of that, all the success came as a consequence. So Zappa asked me, Alcatraz asked me, Dave Roth asked me, Ry Cooter asked me, Crossroads twice, <laughs> White Snake asked me twice, <laughs> you know, and record companies came to me. So it, it, there was no struggle. It was just, yes, no, yes, no. And that was simply a result of my love for the guitar because it developed in me the tools that allowed me to be of service in the appropriate situations. So then when it came time to do my solo music, it was like heaven in a cup. So this doesn't mean that I, have, I don't have challenges in life. Uh, you know, life is precarious. You need challenges. They're the engine of creation. But there was a period of time in, in my early 20s, the age of 20 to 21 and a half, where I, I wasn't a happy person. I was in deep, deep psychological pain, you know. And that was very helpful and necessary, too, because it drove me to uh, start trying to figure out what the little six-year-old boy was questioning. Was it still the same kind of questioning that was causing some yeah, of that pain? I wanted to know what's going on. Why you're here in this body? Yeah. I didn't choose to come here. Why is this happening? Yeah. You're a very metaphysical kind of guy. Well, I was more metaphysical when I was younger. I mean, I'm, I, I delineate a difference between metaphysics and spiritual study. You know, metaphysics has to do a lot with the outside world, uh, what looks like the outside world. But the, the study of spirituality takes the microscope and it turns it inside. That's where I'm the only place you're going to find answers. So through my spiritual studies, I found... I found a center that has helped me navigate and has left me a very happy guy.
So that's the answer to your question. <laughs> you mentioned Crossroads, so I'll just jump right into that because it's, it's what brought a lot of us to you. Um, I remember rewinding that scene hundreds and hundreds of times and listening <laughs> to it and, and watching it. Do you get asked about that movie quite frequently still, I'm uh -huh. assuming? Probably um, more than any other element in my output. That's the one where I get, it's because of that movie that I started playing the guitar. I get a lot. I get that a lot, and that's that's nice. You talked about how you were portraying the character of Jack Butler, and you were kind of in a dark place in that in, in that part of your life, and how you were kind of projecting. Can you talk about what that was, what you were going through at that time, and what what that whole projection of the dark and the projection of the light is, and how that comes into your kind of creative world? Yeah. Well, to the best of my ability to recognize, and this is all subjective. So, when I was in my early twenties. And I started to study metaphysics, new age, stuff like that. I was a very new age kind of a guy, you know, and uh, astral projection, Eastern philosophies, witchcraft, pyramids, all this kind of stuff, you know, religions. I was very naive, and um, if you listen to Flexible, that's that guy, you know. But then the fame started to kick in. And at first I had a big aversion to it because when you're young, they're impressionable. Sometimes things people say can get lodged in your head. And I remember my old aunt saying when I was a little boy, people who become famous go insane, you know. So I thought, okay, I don't want that. <laughs> but uh, once I started to, uh, like, Win all you know, win the awards and on the magazine covers and all the money's coming in and I'm reading my my heroes are recognizing me. At first it was like, what the heck is going on here? This, I'm just me, you know. But then the ego comes in the back door, and uh, it starts believing this stuff, and then you're like, you know, you start thinking who you are. I was a very intense young man, you know, with, with myself. And also, I, I had a very kind of a, a dark, I could project a darkness, you know. I was probably a lot more narcissistic, you know. But when it came time to do the role of Jack Butler, I reached into that bag of tricks. And I just, I knew that I could uh, portray a very dark energy. It was dark. I mean, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. <laughs> I remember we did this one scene, and it's, it's where well, I'm drinking the bottle, yeah. and I just have to, I have to, uh, I was told to just stare down Ralph, uh, uh, Eugene, Ralph Macchio, and he was, he was standing there, and I just had to, you know, I just had to give him the darkest, most piercing for like three minutes. Yeah. So they just filmed it. And when the director yelled cut, he went running. He, he, he went running out of the room, screaming, he's demonic. <laughs> so I was successful in the ability to do that. And after that, I started to get offers for, uh, to be in films. But they were all for these horrific, dark characters. I mean, I, I told you the, you know, the roles, and I just thought, no, no, no. It, it takes energy to go there. 
And there is a perverse comfort in it. Because when you don't give a shit about anybody, as Jack Butler didn't, uh, there's, a, there's a power in that. But it's... It only causes dysfunction and suffering. It's not the power I want. Yeah. So I never... I didn't continue acting. It's something weird about acting for me. I like good actors, but even being Jack Butler, there was something in me that just doesn't feel right. It's phony. So you recognize that, don't that's so much farther than a lot of people get. What was the uh, transition? What made you wake up and see the truth to to your own nature and 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 rejecting the kind of negative output and and gravitating more towards the light? It's a nefarious state of mind, and it, it's a powering and lording over others. Do you know what I mean? And it just doesn't work. Uh, eventually, and, and it's, there was a part of me that did display that back in those days, you know, white snake and stuff like that. I was a bit of prima donna. I was intense. I didn't look at competition. You know, my mindset was nobody is me. You know, now that that w when the ego gets a hold of that, it looks at it as a form of superiority. When in reality, there's nobody like anybody, and that's a lot to celebrate. When you celebrate that, you get the best of others, which then offers you the potential to be the best of you. You see, there's a big difference, and. Living within the dictates of the ego always leads to depression. There's no way around that, and I discovered that. And that's suffering. That, that is a form of deep suffering, depression. Mm -hmm. I know it, you know, and I just don't, I didn't want it. Was there an aha moment, or did it just happen gradually? Aha moments come when you, uh, when you make the decision that you want more peace in your life. Because there, there came a time with this, you know, uh, I, I made a conscious um, decision that what I want in life is I want to know the truth. I mean, the real truth, not newspaper truth or anything. I'm not talking about surface truth. I'm talking about truth. And um, I wanted to... Above all else, I wanted a quiet mind and a peaceful heart. I just, there's a lot of intensity in that too. You can still be intense. Matter of fact, you're more effective when you have focus. And that's what a quiet mind and a peaceful heart brings. And uh, if that's an authentic desire, it has to happen. So the aha moments then start to come and the aha moments are always reflective of the quality of the thoughts that you entertain in your head because that's at the basis of the way you feel and these kinds of things you know so i started meditating and that it was many years ago and that had aha moments you know but it's when you go through an experience and you're uh, 
uh, or a situation or a decision and you're experiencing the results of it, where you're able to look back and say, okay, um, how, could I, how, how could I have chosen better? So that's a very healthy, you know, the spiritual path will allow you to ask those questions. The ego will always say, how could I win harder, you know, over the other, you know? And uh, if you're able to learn by recognizing the better choices you could have made, you get opportunities to make those choices. And these are the aha moments. My biggest aha moment came probably 15 years ago when I was, uh, maybe, maybe a little longer, uh, it was recommend, recommended to me to check out Eckhart Tolle, who's a spiritual teacher. And I was watching one of his videos for the first time. It was called The Illusion of Time. Now, you're, you'll only be able to understand things based on where you're at at any given time in your life. So all of my studies led up to that very moment when I watched this video and he was explaining the illusion of time and the present moment. And it just hit me. It just all, it, it just, just all hit me. I started walking around the room kind of stunned. For me to explain what that was is another, another conversation perhaps. Can we talk about mentors for a minute? Because you've had, as far as I know, three very prolific teachers in your life. The first one was Bill Westcott, right? Yeah. Can you tell me about him and his influence and who he was? And he was like a savant, but tormented. tormented. You know, kind of like a, one of these people that was very creative, but just mentally tormented in a sense, you know? And uh, funny guy, great guy, and he, taught this high school music theory class. You had to be in 12th grade to take it. But I was in seventh grade and I wanted to take it because I, I, I was already writing music. I mean, I was like 10, nine, it was just like, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was writing, well, I was playing the accordion at nine, like all good Italian boys from Long Island. I started to understand the little black dots and that was really exciting for me. That was more exciting than anything. and. Um, I wanted to know it all, and they needed a tuba player in the high school band, and they asked me if I would take up the tuba. And I said, well, I'll make you a deal. I'll take up the tuba for the orchestra if you let me take this music theory class every year from seventh grade. And they agreed, and Bill beat the shit out of me, you know? I mean, for, for six years, seven, eight, nine, ten, six years, right? He really taught me everything that I needed to know about music theory and composition. And um, he was tough, but he was brilliant because he would, every day I had to, my assignment was to compose a piece of music. And I'm not saying, you know, melody and chord symbols. You know, you had to write it so he could sit and play it on the piano. So your greatest training as a composer is to hear what you're writing. And I would hear it, and then he would say, okay, this is, this is what it sounds like if, if it was made uh, Lydian. This is what it would sound like minor, or major, or harmonic minor, and he would just be able to do it. And this is what it would sound like in retrograde, and he'd read it backwards. 
and this is inversion, and he'd read it upside down, you know? So I learned all these incredible techniques, and he was more classically trained, so I learned a lot about classical analysis in music. When I got to Berkeley, I learned more about jazz. Uh, but he was a mentor. He mentored me through that. And then at the same time, I'm playing the guitar and, you know, going, I'm doing my Led Zeppelin songs. And I wasn't connecting the dots between the music theory and the guitar until I started taking lessons with Joe Satch because he was taking classes with Bill, too. But Joe was applying the music theory on the guitar. So that was one of the things that he showed me, he taught me, how to apply it on the guitar. So he was another mentor. And uh, another sort of mentor that I had back in those days was my friend John Sergio, in different ways. Because John, he was a little older than me, but he lived two houses away, and I've known him since I was in diapers, you know? And he was always musical. He was always listening to great music, progressive music. He turned me on. I mean, when I discovered Led Zeppelin, I didn't come out of the house, you know? But then when I started coming out of the house, I'd go to John's and he'd turn me on to Jethro Tull, tickets to the second concert I ever been to, Queen, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, yes, you know, this kind of progressive stuff. And he was the bass player in the first band I was in. He got me in that band. And then we had played together after that. So he was always, I always looked up to him for musical direction, not what I would, what I like, but what's out there that I might like that I don't know. And he always kind of supported me as a player. So he was pretty instrumental too. And then there's um, Zappa. Yeah. You know, Frank uh, was a fabulous mentor. He didn't necessarily take any kind of a deliberate role in mentoring me. He didn't have, you know, he didn't have time for any of that. Frank was just like, okay, just doing what was required was the mentoring process. So that was huge because it was different, again, than all the other stuff. With Frank, I learned, I got my road legs together, you know, I learned about the music business. I learned about if you want to do something, you just do it. You don't make excuses and you don't expect somebody else to do it for you. Uh, I learned a certain irreverence from Frank, which was helpful because sometimes people's reverence is based in things that uh, are just silly and they, they, they don't make any sense. So Frank would take a, a Hendrix guitar, you know, that was Jimi Hendrix's that he burned, and he would take the pickups out and he would put electronics in it. He was irreverent about it, you know, and he, he was an explosion of freedom. He was constantly working and he was not making any excuses. He didn't make excuses for himself. I wanna do this, and if anybody wants to know, that's what I'm doing. And by the way, that's what I'm doing. The end, you know? And he marched to the beat of his own drummer. So that was very influential for me because when I left his band, I just thought, well, if you want something done, you could do whatever you want, but you gotta do it. Sounds simple. But uh, 
also on a business level, I, I watched the way Frank did his business. I watched, I learned how he, how to record, because I was in all the session. I didn't know anything. And I learned how to edit and everything, you know. A day doesn't pass that I don't think about stuff I learned from Frank. That was a great opportunity. And I'd say my next and maybe final mentor in all of that was uh, Dave Roth, you know, because it was another whole dimension of learning. With Frank, you know, I don't even see the audience. You know, you keep your eye on Frank because you had to, yeah. you know. With Dave Roth, you have to learn how to touch the 20,000 person in the last row, you know, and he was great at that. Can we go back to Satriani and your relationship? Uh, I talked to him a couple of weeks ago, and he said that you showed up on his doorstep one time with a guitar that had no strings. But I'm dying to know, why didn't your guitar have strings on it? <laughs> a couple of reasons. Every time they'd break, I wouldn't, I didn't know how to put them on. And uh, I did, I, well, I did know how to do it, but I would have to make it so that there was like an extension or something. And it never really worked because I didn't have strings. I didn't have the money to buy strings. Trying to fix them. Yeah, I try to fix them. Right. You know, finally that became futile. And when I got there, it, it you know, I had a pack of strings, but I didn't want to do it wrong. And Joe showed me how to string a guitar. He said that he remembers a specific time when he realized that you were, you know, growing far beyond his even capabilities back then. Do you re remember, you know, uh, any time where you realized, holy shit, I'm, I'm probably a little bit better at this than a lot of other people? Well, of course you're going to notice that you've got some more technique than some other people, but that's just a matter of time if they stick with it, yeah. you know. But I always had um, sort of, in, in some ways, an insecurity when watching others because I was because when you're looking through your eyes it always looks differently than the way you look at yourself and I'd always say well, you know, why does their tone so good how come I can't get tone like that or wow that's really bluesy I don't play bluesy you don't like to play blues but I like hearing you do it anyway because I mean, that's I, where the crossroads came in because you're yeah I should I, w I shouldn't say I don't like to play blues I don't yeah. like to, uh, I'm not very good at being an authentic blues player right and that was a um, uh, a conscious decision I didn't want to why you know then it didn't hold any value for me exactly the opposite I love hearing great authentic blues players but I just don't want to sound like anybody else you know it's like it was immediate aversion even at 13 years old it's like okay that's fun to play but I'll never be doing that right. <laughs> you know it's not me yeah. and it's not like I was trying to prove anything I just seemed to respond more to quirky little things that came up to say oh there you are <laughs> you know and then I just exaggerated passion and warfare is by far probably been your, your greatest single work. Would you agree with that? I mean, the most popular anyway? Well, it's the most popular. Yeah. yeah. How do you feel about that work looking back at it? I'm so grateful ha uh, that I did that. I can't believe I did it. I listened to it and it was so much work. You ever do that where you look back and you go, how, where did I find the time? How did I do that? 
You know, I do, but that happens today. I, if I watch the Hydra video, you know, I'm like, how did I do that? You know? <laughs> and then you realize you just do it. And um, passion and warfare holds a special place in my heart because flexible was like a test run. You know, I was very naive and innocent in those days and hanging out with Frank and honing my vessel because I, I didn't know anything about recording. I learned flexible was an opportunity to learn all that. But then once I started doing all the uh, rock stuff, the big uh, rock star stuff, I really enjoyed that. But I knew from day one, you know, when I was four years old and I dis discovered music. I mean, of course, I heard it, but actually, you know, getting it. Uh, at that moment, I knew that the creation of music was infinite. And I wasn't going to limit myself. I, I, and that it has to come through you. And I didn't want to limit myself to one particular genre. Yeah, I just uh, found myself pining to get that music out. It was always in there. And as I was doing the rock and roll stuff, I just knew that at some point I had to do it. I remember when that came, when I left Dave Roth's band. I started Passion and Warfare before I joined his band and then finished it after and then released it. And when I released Passion and Warfare, I kind of thought it might be the end of my career because it didn't sound like anything. It wasn't blow by blow. It wasn't Avia Musicom. It wasn't surfing with the alien. And uh, it was more eclectic and a little more high information, so to speak. I didn't know how it was going to be received, but I knew I had to make it. Right. You know, I was lucky, like, you know, that it uh, found an audience. Atlantic didn't know what to do with it at first. Capital. Capital didn't know yeah. what to do with it at first. Well, once I, when I handed it in, they had just had a big hit with uh, Avia Musicom. And I, when I handed it in, the guy that signed me wasn't there anymore. He, he totally believed in me, you know. Don Grierson's passed away now, and Joe Smith. But then uh, there was this guy, Simon Potts, and I, I handed it in, and they, he actually said to me, I don't understand this music at all. We don't know how to market it, so we're not going to market it. We're just going to put it out. And that $300,000 we were supposed to give you, we're only going to give you 150. So because I never felt desperate, I said, okay, fine, goodbye, and I left them. And I, f I gave the record to Relativity, and it went gold in a week. You know, so. so there wasn't a lot of stress there, it doesn't sound like. Pure joy. Yeah. The I mean, if it was stressful, it was because uh, I, had, I had to fit it in, because the, uh, fit in finishing it. And because uh, I was going on tour with Whitesnake. And the day that I mastered the record, Passion and Warfare, and I was working, I wasn't sleeping, you know, I was very little sleep, working, working, working. There's a picture of me with the masters and I'm, I'm going to, I'm leaving the house and I'm going to Bernie Grumman's to have it mastered and then I'm going directly to the airport to take off for Whitesnake tour. That's how close it was. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, if one, if it's one of those stories, and everybody has them, if one element was out of place, 
it, just, it wouldn't have been released then, and it wouldn't have been released for two years because I was with White Snake. Incredible. Where does it come from? Where does your music come from? Do you create it, or is it coming from some other source and coming through you as a vessel? Well, I think uh, it comes from the same place everybody's comes from. It's a, just an infinite well of creativity that exists in all of us. And, okay, so everybody's creative, bar none. You can choose not to use your creativity. You can squash it, but you can't eliminate it. Your unique personality, your, um, everybody has an authentic personality. And that authentic personality, I'll call, uh, is the best of you. It's, it's that part of you that likes you. It likes everything about you. It likes the clothes you wear, it's comfortable in your skin, it, it makes no excuses for the sexuality that you prefer, or the kind of music you like, or whatever it is. Your authentic personality doesn't judge others. It doesn't blame, it doesn't condemn, it doesn't hold grievances. It's beyond that, because all that stuff holds you back, and it obscures your uniquely creative impulses, because everybody has something in their life. That, now, I'm, I'm talking about everybody, and it doesn't matter your intelligence level, your IQ, uh, your status, your wealth, your color, your size, doesn't, none of that matters. But there is something that feels natural on a creative level and joyful for everybody it makes sense to them. Matter of fact, they can't even figure out why it doesn't make sense to others, you know? Uh, it's your natural creative instincts as opposed to your fantasy, which is created by the ego and uh, always leads to some kind of suffering. So when you're engaged in your natural creative instincts, you're connected to that pool. You're connected to the creative impulse of the universe, which is where all those ideas come from, all the good ones. They're meant for you. They're tailor-made for you based on your interests, those things that are clear to you, uh, and uh, your tools. You know, look, come on, look, I'm built to be a rock and roll guitar player just happened that, you know, it's, it's part of the, the thing, <laughs> you know, it's just natural to me. Music was, it's natural. I'm, I'm a natural musician. I'm not a natural player. I have to work really hard. I know natural players, you know what I mean? I have to work really hard, but music is very natural. So when your, your creative inspirations come to you from that pool, you, and they're tailor-made for you, for your joy. And you know that they're the right uh, inspirations because they come with a couple of signposts. One of them is the feeling of enthusiasm. You get that, ah, an idea. You get them. If you're a writer, is it, you know? You, you uh, everybody that's doing what they enjoy doing 
receives inspired creative impulses. And the first thing is the feeling of enthusiasm, ah, you know. And then uh, along with it comes the, the knowing that you can do it. It's not a belief that you can do it. It's a knowing. It's like, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> you got to put in the time. But the time is the, is the, is the fun part. That's, that's the process. When I was sitting there all those years you know, in my teenage bedroom on Long Island practicing hour after hour after hour after hour, it required zero discipline. It was all passion. Uh, the, the discipline, I, would, I have no discipline. <laughs> I mean, of course, within it, there's certain types of discipline that's needed, but it was all a joy. So this is how I know that this is why I could tell you nothing in the music business was ever really challenging for me. I've got life challenges, you know, but not there. Um, because I always followed my natural instincts. Now, the way they come out and the way they show themselves is specific to the interests of the person they're coming through. So with a guy like me, you just, you get things like, flexible and passion and warfare and inviolate and knapsack and the, the hydra. I've got a quirky kind of kooky sensibility sometimes, but there's an intensity behind it. So conversely, the ego will uh, give you certain inspirations too. But those inspirations come to you as a little voice in the head that you talk to all day that plots and plans and tries to figure out the future or laments the past. And it says stuff, and I've had many people come to me, you know, as young kids, they'd say, I want to be a world-class rock guitar virtuoso. <laughs> but they have a tin ear and they don't want to practice, <laughs> you know? So th th you couldn't stop me from practicing. That doesn't mean they're wor better or worse. It's just that their ego is cre creating an imaginary future scenario where the goal is success and fame and money and Grammys and magazine covers and winning awards and all that stuff in order to be happy, you know? Which is the real success, right? Well, that's the worldly success. Mm -hmm. You know, they, it believes that once I achieve those things, then I can be happy. Right. But this is the, an illusion uh, because you can only ever be happy now. And many times it's not uncommon that somebody may do that and they project into the future this, you know, but you know that it's not the thing that's meant for your joy because as you're going through it, you're miserable. You know, you're blaming, fighting, tense, you know, and... Uh, you get to the goal and you fail. And if you fail, you blame the world. And then for the rest of your life, you're a miserable son of a bitch because the world didn't deliver to you or didn't recognize your greatness, okay? Conversely, you can do the same thing and get there and, and have the worldly success. You get that big hit or whatever. And it's never enough. It's never enough for the ego. It will never be enough. How do I know that? I know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and um, it's hard to 
express because until you, unless you do it and you realize, well, wait a minute, I got all those things that I wanted and I'm still a miserable son of a bitch. As a matter of fact, it, it's worse. And this is why a lot of very successful people may, you know, get into drugs or kill themselves, you know. To be able to recognize those creative impulses that are really meant for you, that is the answer to your question, where does it come from? Yeah. There are certain signposts, and one of them is the feeling of enthusiasm for the creative idea. Not the egoic fulfillment of it, the idea itself. When I thought of the Hydra, that, I mean, it was built for me. Enthusiasm, like, you know, I was like, because <sighs> <sighs> it came, they, your, your, your creative, your unique creative impulses that were built for you come to you all packaged in one download, the whole thing, bam, and then you got to unpack it. Your egoic fantasies come to you as uh, a voice in the head that tries to figure things out. It's almost that battle between the heart and the mind. Yeah. Your heart's going to tell you the truth and yeah. direct you in the right place. Yeah. Yeah. Your mind's going to. Your your mind's going to uh, meander. It's it's uh, we're sloppy thinkers. You know you can't figure out any of that stuff. Right. But when you get a, a, a proper creative impulse, you know it, and as you're doing it. You, uh, you just feel good. Now, the problem that a lot of people have is they may be very well um, suited for a particular creative thing, like cooking. Everybody has something. And when they're doing it, and a lot of people are doing it, they love their work, you know? But when they're doing it, when you're doing it with, with love, so to speak, th there's a quality that flows into what you do, and that's your gift to the world. But the conditioning of the world tells you, bricklaying, that's not good enough. You know, it says, no, you, you can't be the guy that, that makes the strings. You need to be the guy that's on the stage playing them and being famous. It's all fucked up. You know, the ego fucks everything up in your head. And it does it to you unconsciously. So the, the spiritual path is about recognizing in yourself how the ego is sabotaging the quality of your life and your creative function. Big thanks to Steve Vai for letting us join him in his recording studio, an opportunity of a lifetime that I will never forget. Be sure to catch these guys out on the G3 reunion tour, and also Steve Vai is touring with Joe Satriani after that. That's the G3 reunion tour and the Joe Satriani-Steve Vai tour, all coming up in 2024. I can't wait to get to one of these shows, maybe even a couple of them. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's Newsweek Radio with Jesse Edwards. Hey.